Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder, Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement. Available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Brad Kearns. Hi, listeners. Host Brad Kearns here with a very special global podcast production where Mark Sisson, chilling in Malibu, California, with the help of Brock Armstrong out in Toronto, joins up with... Dr. Timothy Noakes, all the way across the globe, where he's based in South Africa for this podcast. First thing in the morning for the Malibu types and late in the day for the South African busy schedule of Dr. Noakes. And it's so wonderful that he takes the time to talk to us. And if you haven't heard of him, he's considered by many to be the preeminent exercise physiologist, human performance expert for endurance sports on the planet. And this started with the publication of his masterpiece tome called Lore of Running. This was now a couple decades ago, it's been out, an 800-page volume that covers anything and everything having to do with exercise physiology, specifically to endurance performance. And the cool thing, uh, especially for Mark, with his long background in the endurance scene, is that Dr. Noakes in recent years has embraced primal paleo, ancestral health, low-carbohydrate, Uh, information and movement to the extent that he's actually called into question uh, many components of his life's work, which was based on uh, the endurance mentality or the endurance paradigm of eating and burning carbohydrates to fuel performance. So this is going to be an exciting show where we get, of course, into a little bit of the science, but also a lot of practical tips to take out with Mark Sisson interviewing Dr. Timothy Noakes. I hope you enjoy it. My special guest today is Professor Tim Noakes, a man I've talked about several times on Mark's Daily Apple as a true hero among scientists. His background as an MD who elected to focus his research on sports performance spans over four decades. He's the author of The Lore of Running, Challenging Beliefs, and most recently, The Real Meal Revolution. But I think what's most impressive, in my opinion, about Dr. Noakes was his willingness to radically shift his position on the low-fat paradigm a few years ago, despite having invested his entire career up to that point in basically touting carbs and eschewing fat. As a result of that shift, he has taken an incredible amount of flack from the South African medical community, yet remains resolute in this new position. I can't tell you how much I applaud this and any man of science who's willing to acknowledge a change in assumptions, new data, and or facts over time. We'll discuss all this and much, much more today. So without further ado, Tim Noakes. Mark, I am incredibly honored to be, in, be spoken to you by you because you've been a hero of mine for a long time. And in fact, I'm convinced that it was look, looking at the Mark's Daily Apple that really convinced me that this was the way to go in terms of nutrition. And I'm sure I'm only one of hundreds of thousands of people who can thank you for what you've done for all of us. Well, thank you for that, and I'm blown away because it feels like this is going to be a mutual admiration society right <laughs> off the bat because my first exposure to your work was back in, I'm going to say, 86 when The Lore of Running came out. Is that about right? right? That is exact. You're spot on because the first edition came out in 86. And I, and I, I snapped it up, and I, I devoured it. Um, and for our listeners, The Lore of Running is the Bible of, endurance communi- the, of the endurance community, and I mean that both literally and figuratively because it's almost a thousand pages long, so it's about as long <laughs> as the Bible. Um, and for the longest time, this was, and it still is, the go-to um, reference point for anybody who wants to improve um, athletic performance. So with that sort of as a lead-in, um, Tim, can you give us a little bit of your own background and what led you from um, traditional M- t- training as an MD into 
focusing on performance and, uh, and you know, why that happened and how that happened? Sure, Mark. So I didn't know what to do with my career, but precisely 47 years ago and one day. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was in California, believe it or not. I was visiting as an exchange student in Huntington Park, California, where I had the most unbelievable year of my life, one of the great years of my life. And I was at what's called the American Field Service. I was a student at high school. And coming back from Capistrano to Los Angeles, on the radio on Sunday, the 3rd of December, it said a South African has just performed the world's first human heart transplant. It was mm. 3 o'clock on the Sunday afternoon. And I was blown away. And anyway, three months later, because I didn't know what I was going to do when I came back to South Africa, three months later, I woke up in California and my brain said to me, you will study medicine at the University of Cape Town. And so I applied and was accepted. And when I arrived at the university, then that would be in January 1969, and we started, I started rowing first. So I'd never done any endurance sports before. I'd always played the sort of traditional English sports. And in through rowing, I learned to run. And then one day I went out for a run because we couldn't row, it was so windy. And I went and I decided I was going to run around the lake that we trained on. So it was like an hour's run, which I'd never done before. And after 40 minutes, my brain just lit up and I just knew that this was something I wanted to do. So I had that huge runner's high. And for the rest of my, then I started running seriously two or three years later. And for my entire medical training, all I wanted to study was sports medicine and exercise physiology. I didn't want to know anything about traditional medicine and treating patients and so on. And I graduated from the University of Cape Town without knowing how to use one drug. <laughs> I'm very <really> proud of it. <laughs> wow. That's, that's very unusual. You might be the only one. <laughs> so I don't know how I got through. But anyway, I managed to fool the, fool the doctor or the examiners that I knew something. Right. And I got through. And then I went straight into research because I, knew, I realized I, I was much more interested in the why. And uh, also, I wanted to write the book. I didn't want to have to study the book. Because I'm sure you know that to become a physician, you have to study these incredibly big books. And I just can't do it that way. I want to use it, have information that's useful to me. So then I went into science, into sports science. And I was so lucky because, A, I was self-taught. So I didn't come in with, with any prejudice. And, B, it was at the time when the sports sciences were really taking off. They, they took off in the early 70s, as you'll recall, remember. Oh, Costle and, and Brooks and those guys, yeah, in the U.S. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. They were my heroes. And... And so I followed them, and it was a whole new wave of physiology and, and exercise science and applied science like David Costell did, and I was just enamored of it. And so that, that was what I did, and so, I've been doing it ever since. Wow. Um, and it, it, where we're going to go with this today, and we're going to go all over the place because I have so many different uh, things that we can talk about, I think at, our, at the core we sort of share this, this common – um, urge to buck up against conventional wisdom and question dogma, um, and you've already established that with your uh, willingness to forego learning about drugs, for instance. Uh, I, I've, I found that fascinating. I didn't know that about you, but the the idea that we could that w that we've accepted certain premises, uh, we've inc incurred certain belief systems, if you will, about how to train, about uh, what's important, and you know, you're, what you're known for is, uh, at least in my estimation through the lore of running, is you were the god of carbohydrate management. You were the god of, you know, glucose, glycogen, um, uh, fuel partitioning, RQ, um, all <laughs> of these amazing, you know, you, you took all the data and put it into one easy to comprehend um, uh, format. And I got I got to tell you. So I just in preparation for this talk, I went on to Wikipedia. I love this how how often Wikipedia updates itself, the the bastion of knowledge as it is. <laughs> and uh, it says in the third sentence, he is known for his support of a high fat, low carbohydrate diet, as set out in his book, The Real Meal Revolution. Um, so I just I found that fascinating because for yeah. the longest time, you were the low fat, high carb guy the go-to guy, and with good reason because, you know, I think that the, that the research that you were looking at and probably um, uh, doing yourself was kind of keeping you on that track until 
something in your life changed. And I know a little bit about that with your yeah. your father and your uncle. But can you can you fill us in a little bit about what happened in that particular instance? Yeah, Mark, you're absolutely right. So we did all this research on carbohydrates because that's where we could find the money. We had no absolutely no money when we started. And it's really funny because we measured rectal temperatures and weight loss in runners and worked out that dehydration wasn't, wasn't an issue because that's all we could afford to do. We could only afford a scale and a thermometer. <laughs> and so that's how we started our research. And then we moved into carbohydrates and we're, we're really good at measuring carbohydrate oxidation and glucose partitioning in the body and did some fabulous research in the 80s. And obviously, we believed absolutely. And I now give a lecture and I say, this is the evidence we had. If you had that evidence, would you say that carbohydrates are the key to exercise performance? And you have to say 100% yes. Yes. Because the evidence is so absolutely clear. So what happened to me was that my best running was before I started carbohydrate loading. And I didn't realize it now, but in retrospect, it's very clear. The moment in the 1975-76 when I started carbo-loading and eating a high-carbohydrate diet, my running was never as good again. I had to train twice as hard, and I didn't perform as well. And then eventually I started putting on a little bit of weight in, in my 50s, and I started getting lethargic and not enjoying running. It was running was a real problem for me. And then the night I finished that my next very controversial book, Waterlogged, which we titled The Search for the Killers of a Particular Athlete, whose name I won't mention because it would be unfair on her. Mm -hmm. But uh, <laughs> And I sent the book off to the publishers, and it was the 12th of December, 2010. And in the middle of the night, my brain spoke to me for the second time, <laughs> and it said, <laughs> it said, Tim, you've got to get up at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning, and you've got to go for a run, and you mustn't stop running for the rest of your life. So I got up at 6 o'clock, and I, I ran, I chose the flattest, shortest course I could find. And it was appalling. I had a terrible run. And I come up this tiny little hill near our house. And I thought I was climbing Mount Everest. <laughs> That's how bad I felt. Wow. So I reached, this, I reached the summit of this tiny little hill. And I said, no, something's got to give. So I came home. And best by chance, there was an email advertising Dr. Westman's book, The New Atkins for the New Year. And, and what caught my eye was the advert, and it said, lose six kilograms in six weeks without hunger. And I said, we know that's untrue. You can't do it. And I was about to delete it, and I looked down, and I saw Dr. Westman's name and Finney and Volek, and I said, but I know those guys because they did those high-fat studies. And we were the first people in the world to actually do high-fat studies after them. So they'd been in very influential. And by the way, our original high-fat study showed a huge effect on performance, but they were clearly biased by something because that couldn't be that true. That couldn't be true. Oh, there you go. Right. Couldn't be true. Oh, yep. <laughs> couldn't be true. But And at the time, we just ignored them. So they found that we found this huge effect that people on a high-fat diet did much better. And it clearly was a sort of placebo effect. In other words, the, the athletes had been told by us to believe maybe they worked or something, and they seemed to work. So anyway, so I went, I immediately said, there's something wrong here because these three good scientists couldn't put their names to Atkins unless there was something real about it because we all know Atkins was the murderer. He killed us by telling us to eat fat. So I went and bought the book. It was the last copy at the local book, bookshop. And I opened it. Within two hours, I decided that's it. I found, I've discovered my problem. And my problem is I'm eating too much carbohydrate. And wow. I, from that moment, I said, that's the end of carbohydrates. <laughs> and, and for lunch that day, I started on my low-carb low carb diet. That's that crazy. Was, yeah. So you, you, you succumbed to an online advertisement about losing weight and not being hungry. It, it, that's precisely right. That's and of great. course, it, it hit at the right moment because, yeah. well, firstly, obviously, I was looking for something. I had this terrible run, and I thought I was dying anyway. And then I, in, in eight weeks... I had to go to Stockholm to speak to the elite runners in Stockholm. And my brain said to me subconsciously, narcissistically, it said, if you were six kilograms lighter, you'd look a lot better and you'd have a bit more credibility. Right, right. And they would believe your discussion about carbohydrates. 
Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, eight weeks later, I was 11 kilograms lighter. Wow. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was, as you know, it was, it was easy. It was bliss. And in that time, my running recovered about 20 years. In other words, I went back to what I'd been running in my 40s. And it was tw obviously 20 years younger. And I had some amazing runs. And then in Stockholm, we had two back-to-back -back runs. One was a 10K one evening. Now, before, I couldn't even get 10Ks, please. Quite a fast 10K. And the next day, we did 18Ks in minus 15 degrees centigrade. Mm. And then I knew I was back to running then with those two tests. <laughs> wow. That's that, that's such an incredible story. And what's interesting, I, I'm hearing what, what I would say is a perfect storm that – yeah. Were it not for these confluence of a bad run, feeling, you know, having the, the yeah. pending discussion and wanting to feel good and then getting the online um, solicitation, um, Tim Noakes might never have, have, have shifted his own paradigm away from carbohydrate and toward fat. Yeah, and Mark, it was also in that very first week I discovered your blog. Mm. And there's one picture which you had of this guy who was morbidly obese. And he's, he's in a sort of hut somewhere. And I'm, you'll remember the picture when you think about it. And the last picture of him, he looks like an international class American football player. Mm. He looks unbelievable. And I thought, if you can transform from that to that, then anything's possible. And it, it was interesting how the visual impact of that was huge on me. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and um, you know, now we have thousands of those actual photographic testimonials and, and what I would say is hundreds of thousands of user experiences. So mm. I know this works and I'm fairly certain by now you know this works um, <laughs> and yet there is still the resistance in the medical community like it's all smoke and mirrors or uh, how can you possibly do that and, and, and one of the things that really draws me to you Tim is your willingness to abandon what amounts to three decades of investment mm -hmm. in a career that was built on and based around, I guess for lack of a better term, carbohydrate management and, and glycogen sparing and all the other um, yeah. uh, words that we can use, phrases we can use to describe that. And yet you were willing with new data, with new evidence, with uh, new assumptions, uh, with reviewing the old data and recognizing the biases, you were willing to completely alter your position and yet you've caught an incredible amount of flack from your own peers in some cases tell me what what is that like well absolutely i mean today i spent half an hour with one of the senior academics at my university complaining about the way i've been managed because i'm retiring in a few weeks time and i'm recognized as one of the better people who graduated from my university but I'm graduating at a time when I've been demonized by my own faculty, the, mm -hmm. the, the Faculty of Health Sciences. And it's, so it's astonishing. I'm trying to sort that one out. <laughs> it was really quite interesting. But I think, Mark, the point is I realize that if you're insulin resistant and you're an athlete and you eat a lot of carbohydrate, you're actually increasing the, the earliness that you'll develop problems. And I think you've made that point re repeatedly, that by if you're insulin resistant and you take all this carbohydrate, you're just going to get sick earlier. And however much exercise you do, it's, it's going to be, it's not going to help because it just means you're going to eat more carbohydrate and get sicker earlier. Well, in and some I, cases, go ahead, go ahead. I had the choice, you know, I either continued to give that advice out and knew that I would be hurting people and causing type two diabetes or else, uh, or else I had to change. And I, I your point's absolutely right. When I begin most of my lectures, I say, I was the poster boy for carbohydrates, healthy eating. I never smoked. I never drank. I ran 70 marathons and ultramarathons, and I get type 2 diabetes because I followed everything that I was told to do. Yep. And my wife, you know, she gets so frustrated. She said, you listened to all this advice, and you didn't. You changed, and you did it all wrong, and so on. And I, and I said, yes, but that was, I was following the advice that we absolutely believed in. And, and, and when I got sick, I just assumed, well, that's, that's the way it's got to be. And, and, and only when I realized that it didn't have to be like that, if I stopped eating carbohydrate, did I realize that how wrong I'd been. I mean, that's, that's the real empowering message here is that it, what, no matter how old you are or where you are in that down, downward slope, you can reverse it. You can, you can put your type 2 diabetes in remission. You can prevent ever getting type 2 diabetes. 
Um, if you configure the key for yourself, because it's a little bit different for everybody, but there is an answer. And and I've said for the longest time that you know really, and I hate to I, I hate to sound glib about this, but type two diabetes is a stupid disease. No one really has to get it, and yet no. in in the U.S., some twenty five to thirty million Americans have it. And one of the ironies, and you pointed this out earlier, is that you think that well, one of the ways to 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 achieve better health and to um, improve my longevity is to become a marathoner. So I'll start running a lot. And then as you acknowledged at some point, if you become this carbohydrate-based marathoner, you get on this literal and figurative treadmill where the more you run, the more you feel compelled to replace the carbs overnight so that you can do it again tomorrow. And, And it's just like if your intention is to become a better runner, then it isn't always about the miles and it isn't always about maintaining a topped off glycogen tank. There's a lot of, there's a lot that goes into performance, some of which happens in the gym, some of which happens just by orchestrating certain workouts at certain times a day, some of which happens by now we know by reconfiguring your diet, some of which happens by just not work running one day because okay. your body needs to build itself, you know? And yet we assume that more is better, and that's how I came up with this whole chronic cardio thing. And it sounds like you were a, a typical chronic cardio fifty year old who was like frustrated at your inability to, um, you know, to, 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 to continue to keep running well and to maintain weight. Exactly, because I now know that if I'd realized my insulin resistance 30 or 40 years ago, I, w- I would have been able to run those races without any damage to my body, and I would have been fine. I'm not suggesting it's the way to go, but I, my career would have long- lasted a lot longer, and it was... So I interpret it, it's the carbohydrates that cause the damage more even than, than the exercise. So that's, that was what I certainly learned out of this lot. I'm not, again, if I had my career again, I would have done much more triathlons because I think they're easier on the body uh, than the swimming and the cycling. I think the running itself is, you don't want to do too much of it. But, but the that's key was... That's funny you say that. Yeah. That's, I was going to say, key, it's funny. Go ahead. Go ahead. The key was that for me, for my body, it was the carbohydrates that did the damage. It wasn't the. It wasn't so much the exercise as the carbohydrates. Yeah, two two comments to that. One is I agree with you one hundred percent. I did um, Ironman in Hawaii. In fact, it was mm-hmm. my first. It was my first first uh, triathlon ever. Was Ironman in Hawaii? And, <laughs> yeah, and and even even I finished fourth the next year, and even. Even finishing as high as fourth in the old days, in the dinosaur days, I recovered more quickly from that event than I did from my top marathons. Because I don't think yeah. people get that at the elite level of marathoning, it is punishing on the body. And I mean, yeah. you piss blood for a couple of days in some cases. <laughs> the muscles are are literally they, they it takes weeks to to do the to repair the damage because you're digging so deep. But on a long you know ultra triathlon, yes, you're working hard at some point. And it's man, this gets us into the central governor theory and a whole bunch of other things too. Um, but 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 the point is, yeah, that's a, it's very interesting that you that you acknowledge that uh, a hard marathon is probably one of the most difficult things to recover from. And then you made the point about um, you know the diet being the biggest problem for you. And I would agree 100 percent that while I had the injuries from overtraining, it was the in- highly inflammatory nature yeah. of my diet that was causing the itises. You know, and the and the illnesses that I that that would shut me down on a regular basis and cause this frustrating, um, you know, back to square one sometimes. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I had all the inflammations. I had a chronic Achilles tendonitis, and in fact, then I had a, a frozen shoulder as well. And I could never understand because it was obviously my left shoulder, and I'm right-handed. How could I get a frozen shoulder on the left side? And eventually, when I got my diabetes under much better control. Eventually, it stopped because I'd got the glucose under control and, and the inflammation had stopped. So, again, I had to learn that. And, and now we routinely, when our athletes come up with these chronic illnesses and chronic inflammations in their joints and muscles and tendons, that's it. You know, we say you're insulin resistant. Yep. You've got to get off the carbohydrate, particularly wheat, but you've got to get off the carbohydrates as well. So, in your book, Challenging Beliefs, uh, Memoirs mm-hmm. of a Career, you you chronicle a lot of these um, these these oh, I'm going to say battles you have with conventional wisdom at times, um, and there's some great anecdotes and stories in there about uh, this uphill battle 
uh, in in creating or proving a new paradigm. And one of the things that I'm uh, I've always been fascinated about is this exercise-induced hyponatremia. So for the longest time, yeah. we in the endurance community assumed that the worst thing that you could do was underhydrate in a race. That um, you know this was this was a potential um, deadly experience to run a race without adequate hydration. And so as a result, in my first Ironman in Hawaii, and this is back in the days when they literally pulled you off the course and weighed you two or three times during the event. And if you'd lost more than I forget, it was maybe three or 4% of your body weight. They literally pulled you out of the event. That's how not only concerned they were, but how little they knew about, about vast numbers of people being able to complete this long event. Um, so in that event, I swear I drank 30 pints, 30, 30 bottles of Gatorade, Exceed, water, and um, I was running in third place with 10 miles to go, and I had to pull over the side of the road and take the world's longest piss. Um, (laughs) In in, in that four minutes, I mean, my belly was distended. I wasn't, you know, clearly the water wasn't emptying, but I was so concerned about about, um, dehydrating that I was clearly overhydrated. And it took me that long to to, uh, to 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 void, and the next thing you yeah. know, the, the the guy who had been in fourth place passed me, and he took third place, and and, <laughs> and and that wound up being the finishing. So I didn't I didn't podium that year, but but the point was we were so concerned based on who knows what, based on some uh, assumptions that you have to hydrate and you have to overhydrate, and the electrolytes are the are the are the key, and and yet here you put out this amazing work called waterlogged and show that that being overhydrated is is substantially more dangerous in many cases than being underhydrated. Yeah, indeed, Mark. I was fortunate to see to start running in this in this early, very early 70s. The first marathon I ran, there were only 30 of us in the race, and there was one drink station at 20 miles, 32 kilometers. That was the only drink station. And if you didn't have a drink, someone to look after you, you just drank at once. That's all it was. I remember in that race running and there was, there was open water on the side of the road. And the guy in front of me went and drank the water. Out, and it was in the field. It was lying in a ditch. Oh, wow. And, and it was all muddy. And he was so thirsty, he drank it because there was just no fluid available. And in fact, I was, started a campaign in South Africa to allow drinks to be provided to athletes during races. It wasn't only me, there were other people. And, and we were so successful that by 1981, the Comrades Marathon, which is a 56-mile race, had drinking stations every mile. Mm. And that year was the first year we had a hyponatremia, and the lady nearly died. And she wrote to me, she was unconscious for four days, and she wrote to me about two weeks later, and she said, what happened? And I wrote to her, I said, I have no idea because we've never seen this ever in the history of running. And it took us about four years to realize what had happened, that she'd overdrank. And because by then we'd seen a whole bunch of other cases. And it was very clear that they reported overdrinking. And then in 1989, we set up a beautiful experiment. We proved that it was overdrinking and published it in 1991 in the Journal of Applied Physiology, which is a top American journal. And I thought that that would be the end of the story. Quite the opposite. Hyponatremia really begins in 1993. In the U.S., it just takes off with the first death in, in a female runner in California. And I remember at the time saying, this is the beginning. She's not going to be the first or the last. There's going to be many more cases. And it was really frustrating for me because I predicted what would happen, and it exactly happened. And, I mean, you'll know the story that what happened was that the drinks company started over-promoting their products and they infiltrated into the science and they distorted the science mm-hmm. and they got the scientists to say things which they shouldn't have said on the basis of too little evidence. And then sports medicine organizations came along and said you had to drink as much as tolerable. And that was the death knell because that's terrible advice. And only in 2003 did we finally manage to get those guidelines changed. And in 2007, the American College of Sports Medicine revised their guidelines and said you must drink to thirst, which is, which is the right advice. Right. So that was, that was, it was a sad experience, but it really taught me how industry regulates what the scientists will tell you. And it, uh, that, 
it, it, it raised my concerns about how science has been completely distorted by the influence of industry. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in, in regular life, I've gotten a lot of flack for recommending that people drink to thirst um, on a daily basis as they go about their day. People say, oh, that's not enough, and water is the key to life, and you, you, you must carry around a gallon jug of, of you know, purified water and make sure you finish it and, and that you always pee clear. Uh, and and uh, it's been an interesting um, discussion, if, if you will. And yet, you know, I, I stick by my original premise, which is, you know, I – I am not thirsty. I'm a guy who ma- I guess manages my hydration fairly well. I don't I don't drink that much during the day. I don't suffer as a result of it and I don't but I don't certainly don't feel compelled to be drinking excessively. Do you have any recommendations for the listeners just on how to manage um, hydration on a on a daily basis whether or not they're training? Yeah, I, absolutely. You drink to thirst because I mean again we have to go back to our evolution and as you frequently stated, you can't understand humans unless you understand the evolutionary path that we've traveled. And the reality is that we are creatures and all creatures drink to thirst. And we are the only creatures who are told not to drink to thirst, to drink ahead of thirst. And I just always ask people, well, do you tell your cat when to drink or do you tell your dog when to drink? Do they get sick because they're drinking too little? There's no way you can drink too little. The biology is so controlled, so unbelievably well controlled that you will always drink just enough to stay properly hydrated. And in fact, I think that there's quite good evidence that we, we, we're chronically overhydrated humans. We've got so much excess water. And I mean, in the Second World War, they, the, the British Navy knew that, and they would say, don't drink for the first 24 hours, because if you drink, you just pass that extra urine out. But after 24 hours, you seem to have got rid of excess fluid, and then you, then you start to regulate properly. Mm. So... There's probably evidence that you've got about two liters of extra fluid in the body and that you, you can easily lose two liters without having any effect on your hydration level whatsoever. Interesting. Now, I want to segue from that that you probably have extra fluid in your body as a, um, as a, as a safety mechanism. Uh, let's segue from that back to glycogen. And one of the beliefs that you challenge, uh, which was that glycogen is the be-all and the end-all for determining performance, and most particularly in elite athletes, um, we always thought that it was the peripheral glycogen availability that determined when you hit the wall and whether or not your race was over. And then here, Tim Noakes comes up with this central governor theory that says, wait a minute, you know, maybe there's something else going on here. Maybe... Because the muscles never fully deplete of glycogen, there's always some amount of glycogen there. Maybe there's an override in the brain that's monitoring everything and saying, you know what, I think you should feel tired and I think you should pull out of the race. Mm. Um, tell me how, how you came to this central governor theory and, and, if, and if I've begun to explain it halfway accurately. No, what you said was absolutely correct. You know, I was very fortunate that, that my – PhD in medicine was related to metabolism of the heart. And, and I, for my experiments, I had these tiny little rat hearts. And we had a special working system where they would, I would make them work as hard as they possibly could. And it's a fabulous system so that you can measure the output of the heart and see how it's functioning and see why it's functioning well. So, and I would always ask that question, what's the maximum that I can get out of a system? And so I said, well, how can I get this heart to produce a maximum output? And that was my, my PhD thesis. And I looked at the different fuels. And the interesting thing is that the hearts would fail. They'd eventually get tired, but they would never go into rigor. And rigor is a state where your muscles completely ATP depleted. It's depleted of energy. And when the muscles depleted of energy, it has to go into rigor. And it, then it struck me, you know, 20 years later, that when I watch marathon runners, they never run into rigor. You cannot get a muscle to go into rigor. So there has to be a control, which is saying, you can never use up all the energy in the muscle. And at the same time, you see, the scientists were saying that you slow down, sorry, that you get tired because you run out of glycogen and you can't produce ATP rapidly enough. Well, if that is true, you must just say, well, what happens in the next second? So you've got less ATP. What happens in the next second? Well, you've got less ATP. And if you go on that to infinity, the muscle's got rigor. And so clearly that doesn't happen. 
So I knew that fatigue wasn't caused by a depletion of ATP or glycogen in the muscle. There had to be other factors. And then we came to the idea that the brain was regulating. But the, the key point was that you, you never run into trouble. Okay, of course, people have heart attacks, but that's separate. But when you finish the marathon, you're okay. The, you've got enough energy in the body. So that was the realization that it was a regulated process to make sure that you arrive at the finish without dying. And that's, that's how the brain is regulating your performance. Now, is there um, – there must be um, a, an ability that elite athletes have to override that or at least to, to dig deeper. We say go to the well. Um, and, and in many cases, we look at um, the history of athletes and we, you see – a hundred people uh, line up at the start of the Olympic marathon, and there's probably eight or fifteen guys that could win it on that day, um, given their training and given their their um, laboratory numbers and their and their size and so on and so forth. But what is it that determines who wins on that day? Does and and you know I'd, I'd like to posit that it comes down to the person who's willing to override that central governor and uh is able to do that because willing and able are two different things uh mm -hmm. and can and can dig deep um and I, like i'm reminded of of uh you remember of course you do steve prefontaine the u.s runner yes of course so pre yeah. used to say look and in fact he'd get in the face of some of his competitors and he'd say look dude um you know you may be better trained than me you may have a better vo2 max than me but i'm willing to hurt more than you and that was how he ran his races. He was willing to go, you know, go to the well. Um, Salazar was like famous for as a teenager or whatever, collapsing at the Falmouth Road race because he was willing to dig, dig so deep and almost almost died as a result of it. So it must be that some people have this. Um, I don't know. Is it is it a genetic ability? Is it a learned ability? Is it just desire that allows them to 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 pull out all the stops when it's when it's uh, when 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 the gold medal or whatever is on the line, yeah. Well, Mark, the book I've just finished writing addresses this whole issue, and it it was an amazing moment in my life. We've worked with my university rugby team for the past seven years, and on April the seventh this year, they achieved the greatest performance in in rugby and a rugby comeback in the history of the game. In in that they came from being completely out with seven minutes to go in the game. And they scored 24 points in five minutes, essentially, and won the game. And it's called the greatest comeback in the history of rugby. And, of course, you wouldn't understand how many points that is, but it's essentially impossible what they did. And the, the reason they did it is because we've been teaching them that the outcome is what you believe it to be. And if you can believe sufficiently strongly that this is going to be the outcome, that'll happen. Now, let us take your examples, or let me go back to another example, the one that I show my rugby players every year. It's Mark Allen and Dave oh, yeah. Smart, 1989 Ironman Triathlon. I was and there. They, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and we get Mark speaking, and then you get Dave speaking. And Mark Allen is about to quit, as you remember, with 16 Ks, 10 miles to go, and he gets his vision. And the shaman whom he had visited a few months earlier appears above the lava and calms him down. And all of a sudden, he realizes he's going to win the race. It's just a matter of time. And then when he takes off with two miles to go, Dave Scott is so stunned by it that he begins to talk, think about defeat. And the moment he thinks about defeat, his sensations of effort rise. And he says, I can't do it. It's too much effort. And once you say that, you're gone. So what I think, Salazar was unusual in that he could drive himself to the point of death. But I'm not sure he was suffering more than anyone else because he shouldn't have been because he was still believing in the outcome and he was still winning. If he really had so much pain, he would have slowed down. So I think it's the opposite, that if you believe you're going to win, you actually feel less discomfort. And the moment you say, I'm going to lose this game, your discomfort goes up and you slow down at the same time. And that justifies your decision not to win because I, I couldn't win because I was so tired. And that's how we explain it to all our players, that it's not actually gutting it out because you, if you're winning and believing, you'll have less discomfort than the guy who doesn't believe and quits 
and slows down, he'll actually have more discomfort than you. So that's how I interpret it at the moment. No, and that's an interesting – I like that because it's sort of a double whammy. So not only does the guy who believes get a surge of speed, but that surge of speed immediately disincentivizes or whatever or just discourages yeah. the guy who he just jumped on. And, and, and actually, he doesn't just maintain the same pace. Now he slows down. So exactly. um, and I've and I've experienced that myself a couple yeah. of times in races uh, on both sides. By the way, I've literally <laughs> felt the the wind and the energy and and everything drain out of my body toward the end of a marathon that I was actually in the lead uh, when someone passed me, yeah. and and it's and it's devastating. Um, yeah. And and what? by the same token, I've I felt that that surge of energy passing somebody going. Not only did I just pass this person, I did so. Um, and I faked them out, by the way, because I didn't. I wasn't breathing heavy, so I made them think yeah. that this is effortless for me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I got that, and I got that real sense of of having literally sucked some of their energy and absorbed it into my body, which is what Mark Allen talks about a, a fair amount. Yeah, exactly. One of one of the guys who's working with us at the moment doing his PhD, uh, it, it was a really good triathlete, and he said the greatest triathlete came second one in one race, and he said the last ten k's were absolutely painless. He they were just a joy. And then he realized this is something different, you know, you, that your mind, with your mind, you can control some of the sensations. Right. And that, that if you're feeling really exhausted, the mind is what's really causing it. So that sounds, that, that to me, seems like this is more of a, an outside the, la the lab, outside the gym, off the road sort of training, maybe visualization, maybe, um, um, I don't know, deep meditation. Um, but is it that, or is it just some inherent ability to summon up these sorts of positive thoughts? And, and is that a, a learned um, behavior or is that a genetic behavior? I think it's learned. I think it's genetics as well, but it's learned that one of my great friends in South Africa is a guy called Oscar Chalupski, who, who has the toughest mind I've ever met at the age of 49. He won the, the Molokai channel paddle, which is a 50 kilometer paddle to Hawaii between two islands in Hawaii. And he was competing against Olympic gold medalists uh, from 20-year-olds. And he's won the race 12 times now, 11 or 12 times. And, I mean, this guy just doesn't believe he can lose. And if he loses, it's, it wasn't his fault. But something else went, you know, just you can't explain why it happened. Mm. And, and he was brought up by a father who really pushed him uh, as a very, at a young age. Now, the point is that Oscar has a brother who was even more skilled than him and more talented but never beat him. Because the, his mind just wasn't quite as tough, mm. and but but the point was that they were brought up in a particular environment. But Oscar, Oscar always had the greater desire to win. So I think that you have to go back to the psychology of the, of the child and the, the way they're brought up. And 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 of course, Mark Allen never lost another Ironman after that. So once he'd done that, that was fine. He now knew how to do it from that moment. I mean, the four-minute mile, another example of uh, um, Bannister doing it allowed everybody else. To do it, you know what I mean. It, it just it gave no. everybody else permission to do what was otherwise thought impossible. No, precisely, precisely. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to ask you, um, what is what is your current um, personal diet look like, and are you are you still training reasonably uh, hard? Yeah, I've had a you know I've had a this is my last year at the university, and it, it's been a tough year because of a lot of personal attacks, as you would have seen on internet and and so yeah. on. And so I've had to come to terms with that. And uh, so there were moments when it, it was a little bit tough. But now I'm running. I run 30 to 40 Ks a week. I'm going to actually push it up a little bit now because it's – I always love training in December in Cape Town. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I've got my half marathon race coming up in April. And my daughter wants to run a full marathon with me again. She's turned 40 She said it's a good year for us to run another marathon together. So nice. I'm going to push my training up. My diet is about 25%, sorry, 25 grams a day of carbohydrate, and it's about 70 to 80% fat, and it's, uh, and it's low calories. I mean, I just, I've lost my appetite. It just, it just went. As soon as I started eating fat and stopped eating carbs, my, my appetite went. So I eat one big meal a day and one and a half big, one meal, big meal a day, another half meal, I guess, and a, a bit of snacking. And uh, all the, you know, all the foods that, that we eat, it's from the green list of our book, Real Meal Revolution. But the key is carbohydrate restriction. 
I monitor my glucose uh, two or three times a day, and it's it's looking good. It, I'd love it to be slightly better, but that's the best I can do. And anyway, it turns out that as long as your glucose is relatively well controlled, the triglycerides are the key. Yep. And my triglycerides are really low. They they won't really predict your problems in diabetes. And so I'm you know I'm hopeful that I'll have a almost normal life expectancy. I don't think I can expect a normal life expectancy with this with this condition. Um, but I'll get pretty close. My, the tragedy is, had I realized, you know, 20 years ago and been eating a high-fat diet 20 years ago, I wouldn't have type 2 diabetes now. Mm. Of that, I'm convinced. Yeah, so ironic. And, and you, you know, mentioned um, your appetite and the amount of food you consume, and that's something I make a big deal of with uh, not just Mark's Daily Apple, but recently in a lot of talks that I do. Um, it also goes back to what your initial point of contact with Eric Westman, which, which suggested uh, that you would lose weight and, uh, you know, without hunger. Yeah. And uh, I think one of the great things about a low-carb eating strategy is that your body becomes great, obviously, at accessing your stored body fat so that you can theoretically go long periods of time without, without needing to eat, without having low blood sugar, without eating into or cannibalizing muscle tissue and all these things that have always concerned athletes over the years. And now all of this goes away. But one of the things that I noticed for myself, um, which will concur with your findings, is that I, I eat 30% fewer calories now than I used to eat when I was, even when I was not training anymore, but I was maintaining my weight. But I think my body's become more efficient at, at using calories. And, and, I, and, and there are a lot of people say, why do you want that? Don't you want to eat as much as you can, as long as you can? And, and, and I started to, to, my own little experiment, and I said, well, for the longest time, those of us in the health field have sort of used this, this overriding theme like eat as much as you can eat without gaining weight. Uh, eat as much as you can eat and enjoy the food. You know, so it was about how much it – wasn't, it wasn't necessarily advice as it was a challenge. How much can I get away with eating without gaining weight? And now I've kind of re, re, reframed that into knowing that I – burn fat well, knowing that um, I'm still training hard, knowing that I don't want to be hungry, what's the least amount of food I can get away with eating and not lose muscle and still maintain energy and not get sick and not lose muscle, you know, not, not, not have any uh, hunger issues. And it's amazing how little food people actually need once they've reprogrammed themselves to be good at burning fat and not so dependent on sugar. Would you agree? I absolutely agree with you. And, and I also, you know, people say, gee, you know, have you got anorexia? You eat so little now. But I, I follow the same rule. And I justify it by because of my type 2 diabetes. I think that the less you eat in type 2 diabetes, the better because my glucose control is definitely better the less I eat. But, you know, today was a typical example. I had, we went out to dinner. It was our wedding anniversary last night. But we went to a very, very posh restaurant where they never give you much food anyway. <laughs> so I didn't... <laughs> And I think it was my only meal yesterday. And then I had to get up at 5 o'clock because we went to do some experiments on, on rectal temperatures in guys swimming in cold water. For some reason, the, there's a problem with one of those swims we have in Cape Town that they want to cut the, the distance of the triathlon shorter because the water's too cold. And I know if you wear a wetsuit, you can't get cold. So we had to go and prove that. And then we showed exactly that. If you're wearing a wetsuit, you heat up in the water. It doesn't matter what the temperature is. So then, and then I didn't get breakfast. I worked right through, and then suddenly at four o'clock, I realized I haven't had breakfast, I haven't had lunch, and I'm just feeling slightly hungry. But in the past, there's no way I would have gone those 16 hours or so without food. And it, it's just amazing the, the ease with which you can go 24 hours without food. So it's I, brilliant, I have, it's empowering, yeah. You know, we, we all overeat uh, terribly. I actually just want to. I definitely got some insights in the last week, which I wasn't aware of, which I think I can you probably enjoy sharing with you. One of my students is a, is a really good cyclist, and he's a really good scientist. He did his PhD with me, and he's a medical doctor. But he was one of the he was a he was a he was ranked 80th in the world in mountain bike racing. You see, so he's a good athlete, but to be a doctor, a scientist, and a and a pretty good athlete. And we battled over the sugar story and the carbohydrate story because he was a carbohydrate man. And eventually, he's kind of come around to our point of view. And, and he said to me a few days ago that all the best cyclists in the world from the, the Tour de France teams, 
they, what they're doing now is they're doing much more training on high-fat diets and or fasting. So they do a lot of their training under those conditions, but they still have two or three days a week where they do high-intensity training on a high-carbohydrate diet. So they mix the two because they've discovered on a high-fat diet, you do lose power and you can't speed up quickly and sprint as you have to because cycling is all about sudden changes of speed. Right. But he says, if you're not, if your activity is not as where, the, where your cadence, or sorry, your power output is changing dramatically and where you're just keeping constant power, which is most people, he said, you don't need carbohydrates. You can just do well on fat. He said, for example, we have this Cape Town race, uh, a cycle tour, and it's all by category. So the, And he said the first and second categories, those guys are, are racing each other, and they're sprinting, and then they're going slower and sprinting and slower. They need carbs. He said from the third group onwards, which is 95% of the, of the race athletes, they don't need carbs because they can do it on fat. And I think that's the realization I'm coming to. In the past, I was kind of defending the high-fat diet for elite athletes. I don't defend it anymore. I think it's very it's important, but there's some days you do need to eat to train on high carbs if you're an elite athlete. But for the rest of us, most of us will do a lot better by just cutting the carbs. Well, it's interesting you say all that because um, I was my next question was going to be: Do you think the next level of performance breakthrough will be from from a ketogenic diet? And I was going to lead into that by suggesting that. In my estimation, ketosis is a great tool to use for uh, one who's training to become better at burning fat and accessing fat at higher and higher uh, uh, levels of output, so your RQ shifts, um, but that at some point you do have to tap into glycogen to get those bursts of speed or power or strength, and that maybe there's there's a middle ground there. Um, we, we, we use the term train low, race high. So you train at low, yeah. uh, low, low carb, low glycogen, and then you race with your glycogen tanks topped off. The reality is it doesn't take that much carbohydrate the night or, or the day before an event to, to top off glycogen in the muscles. And I would submit that if you use ketosis periodically, not all the time, um, which it appears in your case, you're you're using it pretty much all the time, but then you're not having those those huge power outbursts. Yeah. But yeah. even if you're an elite athlete, you still need to use ketosis as a tool, um, maybe in your periodicity of the training, to literally, you know, kind of create the the mitochondrial biogenesis that will then, once the mitochondria are are increased and improved, they don't go away unless you you know unless you detrain. Yeah. They stay yeah. there, and so you can still put more fat through and you don't you don't lose it. You don't need to be in ketosis to race as long as you're good at accessing fat. As long as you can use some ketones to offset the glucose dependence during a race, then it's this wonderful mix of being really good at burning fat and being able to manage. And now we go back to the lore of running and being able yeah, to manage exactly. manage your glycogen stores. Yeah, exactly. You know, I've I've been very rude about lore of running, and and I've on the serial killers documentary, I tore out the pages. But actually, when I looked at the pages. They weren't that bad. They're actually quite good. It's just it doesn't have enough on fat adaptation. Yeah. No, so I was stuff of yeah. is quite good, but it just needs a bit more on fat adaptation. So, exactly. so I absolutely agree with you on that point. And I think there are also different additional advantages of ketosis that that vol, that, vol, that uh, Jeff Volek and his colleagues are, are are looking at. You do seem to get better mitochondrial mass development and so on. So I think that that's quite right. Now, there's another point that we are studying high-fat athletes and high-carbohydrate athletes. And in the process, I came across some literature showing that if you're fat-adapted, you metabolize carbohydrate totally differently. When you ingest carbohydrate, if you're fat-adapted, you store it immediately as glycogen and you continue to burn fat. Whereas if you're carbohydrate-adapted, as you know, you just burn it as carbohydrate as a fuel. Right. So there is, so that I think is what's happening to these guys who are so fat adapted. At the moment they take in carbohydrates, they store it, but they continue to burn fat as they fuel. So, for example, in our experiments where we compared high fat athletes to high carbohydrate dietary athletes, the high fat diets actually do burn quite a lot of carbohydrate during exercise, which is surprising. The difference is during the rest of the day, they don't burn carbohydrate. It's only when they're exercising they burn a bit of carbohydrate. But the high carbohydrate athletes burn a lot of carbohydrate during exercise and even more at rest. Mm. 
And so, so much of the carbohydrate that they're taking in, they're wasting because they're burning it during the day when they could be burning fat. And I think right. that's what the periodization of, of nutrition and training is. It's maximizing both of those pathways. Yeah, at the, at the very least, um, your ability to burn fat at rest means that you are shedding excess weight. I mean, some of these cyclists will yeah. pay an extra 8,000 bucks to, to shave um, 200 grams off their frame, you know, and yeah, exactly. uh, off their bike frame. And yet um, you could, uh, th this is something I've submitted to the entire endurance community. You show up at a, at a bike race or at a triathlon or even at a marathon and you see that outside the elite 100, there are a lot of people who have 10 or 15 pounds to lose that they're going to be carrying yeah. for the next 26 miles, and they could lose it very easily with yeah. a with a low-carb eating strategy, and that alone would be like taking off a 15-pound backpack during the race. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And we, we've looked at that, and in the half, uh, popular half marathon in Cape Town, turns out 30%, fortunately we have body mass indexes of all these people, and 30% are overweight or obese. That, so 30% of the field who are training enough to run a half marathon are obese. Yep. It's astonishing. And we know, obviously, or think they're insulin resistant and eating high carbohydrate diets. So that's the first population we're targeting, and we're going to start experimenting with them next year. To I mean, see the sad part is they think they're, the, the sad part is they think they're, they're doing themselves a favor by entering this marathon and then carbo-loading to train for it. Exactly. Yeah. And and do you know, they, they, they assessed how much sugar was taken in during that race and in the surrounding events, a half marathon and a full ultra marathon. It was tons of sugar. Can you believe it? On one day, tons of sugar mm. are being Touched. eaten by these athletes. It's astonishing. Wow. wow. Um, Tim, it's, it's, um, it's Friday night in South Africa and here you are hanging out with me online when you could be out partying and, uh, <laughs> and who knows what else, but, um, we're, we're, we're out of time here. I really appreciate your spending time. This has been an amazing, um, revelation in some regards for me and just an amazing experience getting to, uh, share thoughts with, with a guy that I consider a hero as well, um, Tell us where, like what's upcoming and where we can get your book and uh, you know how we can get find out more about Professor Tim Noakes. Yeah, well, the book, I'm glad to say, Mark, the, the, the Real Meal Revolution is being released in Europe and I presume America. I'm a bit behind by Little Brown in February. So that's the first breakthrough that's going to happen. So we're hoping that the, our ideas about nutrition will be more widely, wide, become more widespread then. Uh, you, you quoted the book, Challenging Beliefs, and I think if people really want to know who I am, that's I wrote that book to describe exactly who I am. So that would be something to read. Um, what, what I really want to do is to show that you can take people with type 2 diabetes being treated with medication, either insulin or, or glucophage metformin, and you can reverse it, as you know, because people write to you every week and tell you they've reversed their diabetes. But we're in a position where we can study everything that goes into insulin resistance. And I really want to show that these people remain insulin resistant, but the manifestation of diabetes disappear. And that really proves that it's the carbohydrates that cause the problem, not the insulin resistance. And that's where we get it wrong, because in medicine, I'm taught, or I was taught, that you first get fat and lazy and you don't exercise, and then you get insulin resistance, and then you get diabetes. I don't believe that at all from my own experience. I've got the genes, the terrible genes, and it was a high-carbohydrate diet. Now, I've lost the weight. I'm very lean, but I'm still profoundly insulin-resistant. And so, to me, it's the genetics of the insulin resistance that, that is there. And that's not a problem because evolutionarily, it must have had value to us. Otherwise, so many people wouldn't be insulin-resistant. I'm sure you know that in America today, 50% of the people either have diabetes or prediabetes which is astonishing, which tells us that insulin resistance is present already. We know it's diagnosed in 50% of the, of the American population. And therefore, it could be another 20 or 30%. It could be 80% are insulin resistant. And as long as you understand for insulin resistance, you cannot eat carbohydrate. Solve the problem. And so that's what, that's what I really would like to show. Well, you're doing a great job thus far, and you are clearly passionate about it. Um, and I, and again, I love the fight that you're fighting there against, uh, against some odds, but I know that you're getting more and more 
agreement on your side. Um, and, and what I can tell you is uh, you have tremendous amount of support from all of us in the paleo primal ancestral community in the U.S. of A. And keep up the awesome work. It's been a pleasure hanging out with you today, Tim. Well, Mark, it's been my real pleasure. It's such an honor to, to be on your program and to speak directly to you, having read all your books. And, you know, I, I view you as one of the great pioneers in this field. I'm just, I'm a latecomer, but I really appreciate <laughs> that, that, that you're thankful for what I'm doing and that, that makes it all the worthwhile. So thanks again. And I really look forward to the day when we can chat face to face. Likewise. And, and let's do this podcast again soon. Thank you very much, Mark. Safeguard your health with the most comprehensive all-in-one nutritional supplement on the planet. Primal Nutrition's Damage Control Master Formula. Forget mixing and matching with multiple bottles of individual agents. Now you can just take a single packet of the most potent and optimally balanced multivitamin, multimineral, antioxidant formula available on the market. You'll enjoy complete immune system, cardiovascular, memory, nerve, bone, liver, and anti-stress support. And much more. With 51 research-proven ingredients, Damage Control Master Formula helps you combat oxidative damage in every cell and every system in your body and shore up any dietary shortcomings with complete protection. Order Damage Control Master Formula today at PrimalBlueprint.com and check out the incredible free shipping offer for our convenient and custom-designed auto-ship program.